Okay, everyone, I think it's uh, 5.30 by my watch, so it's, uh, it's time to begin. Um, welcome, everyone, to the first meeting of the Aristotelian Society uh, of this uh, post-Christmas session. Um, we're extremely lucky to have Emily Thomas um, as our speaker this evening. Um, Emily works both on metaphysics itself and also on the history of metaphysics, particularly the history of work on space and time um, of a metaphysical sort. Um, she is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Durham um, and uh, her past history includes a spell at Cambridge where she did her PhD um, and also some time at the University of Groningen uh, where she was a research fellow. Um, and tonight, um, Emily is going to be talking to us, let me get the title right, about time and subtle pictures in the history of philosophy. So without further ado, over to you, Emily. Thank you very much, Helen, um, and thanks in general to the Aristotelian Society. I'm missing Holly for organising this. Um, it's a real honour to be here. Not least because I spend a lot of time reading papers that were delivered to the Society about a hundred years ago. So it's a real pleasure to be here now. What I'm going to be talking to you about tonight is a new project for me, looking at pictures. But as far as I can tell, it's a fairly new project for history and philosophy of time, full stop. So hopefully we will all be learning things. So here is something that is true about the history of philosophy. Throughout its history, philosophers have used words and they've also used pictures to get their ideas across. Although Historians of philosophy of time spend a lot of effort looking at the words. We rarely look at the pictures, and that's what I want to do tonight. So we're going to be looking at some historical pictures of time shortly. What I want to do right now is just stress how much contemporary philosophers of time still use pictures. So I'm going to give you some examples. This is going to be a picture-heavy presentation, which hopefully will make it more fun. <laughs> so here's an example from Arthur Pryor, classic text, lots of diagrams of time throughout all of his books. Next example, we've got one from David Lewis. Uh, this is a picture of branching features, how the future might look. Another example from McCall, uh, illustrating different ways that time might be. So we've got a straight timeline, we've got many worlds timelines, we've got timelines that branch in different ways. This is one from Stephen Savitt. Uh, he is illustrating uh, different <coughs> ways of looking at presence. And finally, Almost finally, this is Craig Bourne. Craig also uses lots of pictures in his works. Um, by Dayton, Time and Space, that particular book is really riddled with pictures of time and space. Um, and this is the final one. Heather Dyke 
also uses lots of pictures to illustrate different ideas about time. Now, visual historians do consider representations of time outside of philosophy texts, but I'm not aware of any history of philosophy on pictures of time in philosophical texts. I've done a lot of literature searches, so even if I've missed something, if they're out there, this work must be rare to vanishing. I'm actually not at all convinced there is any history of philosophy on pictures of time in the scholarship. But I think that we should be looking at it. I think that looking at these historical pictures of time can be philosophically rewarding. I'm going to make this case by looking at three examples of historical pictures of time and arguing that we can read a lot of philosophy into them, that they can play quite subtle argumentative roles. Although the aim of this paper is specifically to convince historians and philosophers of time that they should be paying attention to pictures, more generally, I want to argue that historians and philosophers can get a lot out of looking at pictures too. So to that end, the paper is going to proceed as follows. In section two, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on who and who doesn't look at pictures in history. In section three, I'm going to examine these three case studies, one from Leibniz, one from Arthur Eddington, and one from C.D. Broad. Finally, in section four, I'm going to be arguing that historians of philosophy more generally can benefit from looking at pictures in historical philosophical texts. So, you turn to section two on your handouts. I'm going to borrow from literature in the history of science. Do you all have handouts, by the way? Are there people who don't? Yes. Sorry. I, Sorry. <laughs> this seems like an important point. <laughs> no worries. Okay, good. All right, so as handouts are obtained, I will turn to the history of science. And in the history of science, lots and lots of historical scientists have used pictures in their works. So I'm just going to give you a few examples just to make this point. Right, so here is Galileo drawing pictures of the moon for the very first time back in the 17th century. This had never happened before. He showed that the moon has mountains. Uh, another picture, this is what a full stop looks like under a microscope. <laughs> uh, this is a 19th century representation of Mars. For some reason, they thought that it was really oddly shaped. <coughs> um, this is one of the earliest representations of sound waves. Um, and this is an early botany illustration that was recently discovered by the sister of Mary Wollstonecraft, <coughs> oddly enough. So historically, scientists have often included pictures in their work, but 
It was only fairly recently that historians of science thought that pictures might be important. So there were a few historians of science in the 70s and the 80s who began arguing that pictures might really matter. Um, and back in 1976, Martin Rudwick, who is one of these pioneers, um, he argues that in the history of geology, um, pictures are just missing altogether or they are reduced to a virtually decorative role. Rudwick argued that this should not be the case, um, that in fact pictures are really important to science in various ways. Um, and because I can't resist, uh, Rudwick was really into dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> the changing ways that people represented dinosaurs in historic scientific texts, he thought could tell historians an awful lot about the evolution of geology. Rudwick pioneered this stuff along with a few other people and now studying pictures in the history of science it, um, is a well-recognised pursuit. There's a lot of work on pictures in the history of science. The reason why I'm really interested in history of science work on pictures is because there's an awful <coughs> lot of parallels to pictures in the history of philosophy. We're also looking at pictures in books, pictures that are not artworks. They're often just diagrams or figures. And, and I think that a lot of the stuff that historians of science say about pictures can just be carried across to the history of philosophy. So here are some things that are very commonly held in history of science literature. So it's commonly held that scientific images can record, store, and transmit information. It's commonly held that pictures can add information to a text, can supplement a text. And it's also claimed that many scientists treat pictures as integral parts of arguments, so that pictures can actually play an argumentative role. And I think as soon as you stop to think about it, that's actually fairly commonsensical. If we believe that pictures can convey information, and clearly they do, otherwise philosophers <coughs> wouldn't be including them in their books, then information can be used for lots of different things, including to make arguments or to supplement arguments. In other fields, this kind of stuff is uncontroversial. Um, so the idea, for example, that maps are persuasive devices is really well talked about in history of cartography. Just to give you a quick example, um, here is a world map produced by Europeans. The center of the map is Europe. Here's a world map produced in China. The center of the world is China. Um, and so what maps do is they embody information, but they also play a rhetoric role. They're trying to persuade us about the importance of various places, for example. There's also some really nice literature on history of technology. So for example, some historians think that in showing us pictures or diagrams of machines, those authors are trying to persuade us that these machines will work. So again, there's a rhetoric 
role for these pictures. Now, similar claims have been made about a few pictures in the history of philosophy. For example, art historian Susanna Berger has done a lot of work on the frontispieces to Thomas Hobbes's political philosophy books. Uh, Leviathan <coughs> is the really famous one. Um, and if you've ever studied this frontispiece, you can see that the big man is made up of lots of little men. Yeah, and, and this is a really nice visual metaphor for how Hobbes thinks the state should go. There's actually some even better stuff from Hobbes. And I, again, I just can't resist showing you this. So the frontispiece of his 1642 De Civ, you have these two figures here. And Berger has argued that the point of this frontispiece is to show its readers that a life of liberty or natural freedom is a life of horrors. So just to give you some close-ups, if we live a life um, under imperium, under a sort of natural power, people look very happy. There's farming going on, right? People appear to be sort of, they're a bit bulky, they're well-fed, <laughs> all is well. In contrast, uh, if we live a life um, under uh, liberty, natural freedom, uh, we've got people having bow and arrow fights, there's someone killing somebody else with a club. Uh, it's even been suggested in the middle right that that is a dangling human limb. <laughs> so, what Hobbes is trying to do through these images is persuade us of his philosophical views. So his pictures are playing a rhetoric device. I don't think it's controversial that pictures can bear information, and I also don't really think it's controversial that pictures can act as rhetoric devices. I'm just going to accept that that's true, and I want to go on to show you that this can be useful when we turn to other philosophical texts. What I do want to do, however, in these other texts, is to make the case that pictures don't always play philosophical roles in obvious ways, that sometimes the information they convey is implicit or subtle, um, and that's why they are particularly interesting for us to look at as historians of philosophy, right, to dig out the subtle information that pictures are conveying. So to do that, I'm going to give you three case studies. They're all about time, and they are from three philosophers. So we have Leibniz, Eddington, and Broad. These case studies span 222 years, and I have selected them for two different reasons. The first is that time is absolutely central to the metaphysics of each of these philosophers. And as mostly what I do is work on history of metaphysics of time, I think there's then a case to be made that if we can say <coughs> something interesting about their metaphysics of time by looking at their pictures of time, that's just going to be of general interest for understanding their metaphysics. Right? So it would be much less fun to pick 
a philosopher like Hobbes who's not hugely interested in time and see what he says about his metaphysics. Whereas if we can say something substantial about three, these three figures, it's going to matter for how we interpret their work as a whole. As far as I'm aware, there is no scholarship at all on any of their pictures of time. Um, and that includes the picture we'll be looking at in the leibniz Clark correspondence, which I think is surprising given the volumes of literature on the leibniz Clark correspondence. The second reason I've picked these three case studies is that I think they contrast nicely with each other in that they all depict time in very different ways. So time is not something we can represent naturalistically. It's not like a chair or a dinosaur. There's no realist way of depicting time. And one of the things that means is that when you are drawing time, you are forced to make lots of choices about your non-naturalist depiction of time. And we will see that these three authors made really different choices when it came to representing time. Just to give you a few examples, each of them represent time at different scales. So we'll see that Leibniz is interested in the duration of the universe as a whole. Um, Eddington depicts the duration of his life more like 80 or 90 years. Broad depicts just a couple of moments. So these are really different choices with regards to the scale of time that they're depicting. Each of them orientates past and future on different axes. Some go top down, some go left right. Some represent space. Some label the past, some label the future, some don't. I'm going to be arguing that the choices these authors made feed really deeply into their metaphysical views about time. That the way they represent time really embodies some of their philosophical thoughts about it. So, I will turn first to Leibniz. Leibniz is famous for clashing with Samuel Clarke over the nature of time. So Samuel Clarke defends what's known as uh, Newtonian absolutism. And this is the view that time exists independently of created things. One way of thinking about this is to think of space and time as a kind of container for the universe. So if you're an absolutist, you think that space and time is there and, and the universe is somehow inside this container of space and time. Against absolutism, Leibniz defends a view called relationism. Leibniz thinks that temporal relations holding between things comprise time. I think it's much easier to get a grasp on the spatial case than the temporal case, so I'm going to show you the spatial case first. So, if you are a relationist, you think that space comprises relations between 
objects. In this case, you've got spatial relations between stars. So space is a network of spatial relations holding between things. Exactly the same is the case for time. So we have lightning and thunder crashing, and then a little bit later, the rain starts to fall. So time is comprised of relations holding between events, if you're a relationist. Now, <coughs> I'm giving you this background by way of introducing the diagram to come. So, on Samuel Clarke's absolute view, it was possible for God to have created the material universe sooner than he did. And that makes sense, right? Like if time just exists, then you can create the universe at any point along the timeline. So the universe was created here, but it could have been created a little bit earlier here. As a relationist, Leibniz rejects this possibility. And he does so on this page. This is the printed version of his letter to Clark. Um, and as you can see, it includes a diagram in the corner. And um, here is a close-up of the diagram. And I think you've got this on your handouts as well. So Leibniz rejects the possibility that God could have created the universe sooner than he did. And he does so in the following passage. So he says, let us suppose our universe represented by AF and that the ordinate AB represents its first state, so that's the bit at the very top there, and the ordinate CD and EF its following states. I say one may conceive that such a world began sooner by conceiving the figure prolonged backwards and adding to it SRAB. For thus things being increased, time will also be increased. But whether such an augmentation be reasonable and agreeable to God's wisdom is another question to which we answer in the negative. God created things at what time he pleased, for this depends upon the things which he resolved to create. But things being once resolved upon, together with their relations, there remains no longer any choice about the time. So what Leibniz is saying is that God could not have created the universe at an earlier time because time began when the universe was created. When God creates things, temporal relations emerge between them and then you get the creation of time. This diagram that Leibniz uses to illustrate his point is present in all four of the drafts of his letter to Clark. So it's this printed version of the diagram you can see in Leibniz's own handwriting and it's the same shape, same labels in all the earlier drafts. Now Leibniz is explicit about what his diagram is doing in his response to Clark. He's using it to explain why he doesn't think God could have created the universe earlier than it did. But I think that this diagram also provides implicit support for relationism in the way that Leibniz draws it. So 
Back in the 17th century, a really popular way of recording events is using chronological tables. Um, and this is just an example. So back then, timelines didn't exist. When people wanted to record dates, they used grids and tables, and events were placed into these grids. I think that Leibniz's universe looks a lot like one of these tables. It, um, it has the same horizontal lines, chopping it up, it, um, and in the same way, it, there are um, events in it. We also have the top-down orientation, um, the same way that you would have in a table, so the past is higher up and the future is lower down. Leibniz did not need to represent the universe in a thick way. Um, he could have drawn it much more simply, something like this, right? This would be sufficient to show different states of the universe over time. Um, but instead, he gives us this quite elaborate diagram where the universe is thick. And I think this resemblance to a chronological table is deliberate. It is placing the focus where it should be placed on the events and on the relations between them. And I think it's quite a nice way of drawing a relationist universe. More speculatively, I also have been wondering about the strange shape of Leibniz's universe. So you can see on the handouts that there's a curve to it, that the universe seems to increase in some way. Exactly what is increasing? Well, Leibniz doesn't tell us, but I think we can take a guess. So Leibniz is explicit elsewhere that the number of substances does not increase over time. And he's also explicit that the size of the universe doesn't increase over time. So the increase can't be number of things or size of the universe. So then I wonder, is anything else increasing over time? Actually, it turns out that there might be an increase in perfection. So in another letter, and this is authored just a year before his letter to Clark, Leibniz is asking whether or not the universe always increases in perfection. Um, and he gives us these diagrams to illustrate various different possibilities. I'm not going to talk through all of them in detail, but just briefly, on diagram A, it, um, the universe does not increase in perfection over time. Perfection <laughs> remains stable across time. In contrast, on B and C, perfection increases over time. It seems to me that there is a similarity between this hyperbola and this hyperbola. And bear in mind, these letters are written just 12 months apart. And so speculatively, I wonder if that's because Leibniz has decided at this point that in fact, the universe does increase in perfection. Um, and that's why he draws the universe in the way that he does. Now, this is speculative. 
And if there are any Leibniz scholars in the audience, I imagine they're going to be saying, well, the only way to really determine this would be to look at all the diagrams Leibniz ever drew in his corpus. And yes, <laughs> I agree. But then let's do that. <laughs> if we can find these kinds of connections and that's going to help us understand Leibniz's metaphysics, that seems to me like it would be a good thing. So to sum up, this figure is playing an explicit role in Leibniz's objection to Clark, but I think it could also be playing an implicit role. It's encoding his relationism, and maybe it also has something to say about his considered view on whether or not the universe is increasing in perfection. Okay, next case study we're going to discuss 3.2 on your handouts. So this is from Arthur Eddington. So we're fast forwarding a couple of centuries um, to 1928 and Eddington's book, The Nature of the Physical World. I'm going to be focusing on a diagram from chapter three, which is labelled time. So in this chapter, Eddington starts off by explaining some scientific ideas about time. Um, and this includes Einstein's theory that time is relative to your frame of reference. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. Uh, Eddington talks us through the twin paradox, which was still very new back in 1928. So the paradox of relativity, or one of them, um, is that if you travel very, very fast, <laughs> then uh, you will age uh, more slowly as opposed to your twin who stays at home on Earth. So Eddington is trying to get across the idea that time is relative to your frame of reference, that if you travel very quickly, time will pass more slowly for you. In this context, and I want to stress that he is presenting these diagrams in this scientific context of explaining Einstein's theory of relativity. In this context, Eddington proposes to give us some examples to show how time is relative to your frame of reference. And he uses his own case as an example. Here we go. Also, quite neatly, Eddington provides a frame for his diagrams. I think it's quite nice. No one else does. <laughs> so he's showing us his frame of reference using a frame. Eddington gives us this diagram and then he talks us through it. So he's saying, um, I can immediately label this thing in the centre. This is the event here and now. And that's what's happening right now in this room. Other events are at varying degrees of remoteness from here now. Some of these events are remote in time. So he writes, some events spread away towards what, in a general way, I call the past. These are these things down here. I can contemplate others which are distant in the future, higher up. Others are remote in another kind of way towards China or Peru, or in general terms, elsewhere. 
So Eddington labels the line down the middle myself, <coughs> um, and he describes this four-dimensional worm as a correct portrait. So he writes, I have considerable extension towards the past. When he's writing this, he's been alive for about 40 years, um, and presumably towards the future. He's hoping to live for another 40 years, um, and only a moderate extension towards elsewhere, because he's only in one place at one time. In contrast, other things are happening in other places relative to his now. So he mentions Peru, perhaps an election's going on in Peru when he's writing this, and monkeys are playing somewhere in China at the same time that he's writing this. Now, Eddington is explicit in this chapter that the purpose of the diagrams is to explain how frames of reference work in a scientific <coughs> context. He presents these diagrams as being scientific, not philosophical. But I think that the diagrams subtly do more than just present the science. So one thing the diagrams seek to do is persuade us of Eddington's belief in becoming. By becoming, Eddington means this sense that time is moving forward, that the present moment becomes in some way, that now is present and a few minutes ago are past. In chapters four and five of the book, so after all of these diagrams have been presented, Eddington makes an argument for the reality of becoming. He argues that time does have a one-way arrow, independent of what science tries to tell us. So he asks what a personification of science would say to the notion that every day I grow better and better. And he says science would say, I see no signs of it. I see you extended as a four-dimensional worm in space-time. I'll grant that one end of you is better than the other. But whether you grow better or worse depends on which way I hold you up. There is in your consciousness an idea of growth or becoming, but I've searched for such a label all through the physical world and can find no trace of it. So in Eddington's view, science treats time like space. So you've got a map of the Alps, whether or not a mountain is growing bigger or lower just depends on which way up you hold the map. Eddington thinks science says exactly the same thing about time. Maybe Einstein becomes a much better person as he gets older, but from the perspective of science, that just depends on which way up you hold time. Although Eddington thinks that's how science regards time, Eddington thinks that science is wrong. So he puts forward various arguments for the idea that in fact there really is becoming, that time really is moving forwards. I think that Eddington has encoded his belief in becoming in the earlier diagrams. So he's labeled the top of the picture future and the bottom one past. He didn't need to do that. On the other parts of the diagram, he uses the words elsewhere to refer to events that are distant in space. He could have done exactly the same with time. He could have had else when and else when. 
He could have put dates on there if he preferred. He could have had 1926 in the middle, 1950 at the top, 1910 down at the bottom. Instead, he uses this suggestive language. He could have done exactly the same rather than writing now. He could have said London, 1926. But there was no reason for him to use the language that he does. I also think that these diagrams encode a more theological aspect of Eddington's worldview through their time orientation. So Western representations of time usually depict time flowing from top to bottom or to left to right, just like Western reading order. We go top to bottom and left to right. And that is by far the most common way that time is depicted in Western texts. Now, Eddington hasn't done that here. He's made the really unusual choice of depicting time flowing from bottom to top. Why does he do that? Well, I think one answer can be found in the final chapter of his book, The External World, where he explains that we trust to some inward sense of fitness when we orient the physical world, the future on top, and likewise we must trust to some inner monitor when we orient the spiritual world with the good on top. It turns out that Eddington believes that our world is one of progress. It, um, there's a theological basis for his belief. He thinks that we are getting better and better and presumably there will eventually be a pleasant end state. He also refers to the way that heaven is above our heads. It's up in the clouds, it's in the sky. And when you put these things together, I think it makes sense. Eddington is gonna put the future on top because heaven lies in our futures. So I think there's a theological dimension to his unusual choice of earlier, later orientation. I also want to point out that as philosophers, we can distinguish between arguing for a view and just holding a view. It seems to me, if I'm right that Leibniz's diagrams are telling us something about his views on the perfection of the universe, and Eddington's diagrams are telling us something about his theological views, that what these philosophers are doing is showing us their views without actually arguing for them in these particular passages. And, and that's perhaps because these are views that are really hard to argue for. It's hard to argue that the universe is increasing in perfection and that heaven lies in our futures. And so perhaps pictures provide a way of showing these views without arguing for them sometimes. Okay, I'm going to move on to the last case study, um, and this is produced in the 1930s by C.D. Broad. So, in the 1930s, Broad produced two volumes which together make up his examination of McTaggart's philosophy. Uh, this is an examination primarily 
of McTaggart's two-volume book, The Nature of Existence. In the second volume of Broad's examination, there's a chapter on time which critiques McTaggart's own views on time. Um, and it sets out Broad's own position in the process. McTaggart distinguishes between two different ways of ordering positions in time. So on the B series, positions are ordered by earlier and later. On the A series, positions are past, present or future. McTaggart claims that B-series positions are permanent, whilst A-series positions aren't. So just to give you an example, if you take this moment on the 8th of November 2016, when Trump won the election, it is permanently the case that this moment was after the moment when Obama won. B-series positions are permanent. In contrast, on the A series, there would have been a moment where this moment was now, but it's now in the past. So B series positions are permanent, A series ones are not. McTaggart goes on to argue that the A series is more fundamental to time than the B series. So if you reject the reality of the A series, you're rejecting the reality of time. McTaggart does this by arguing that past, present and future are incompatible determinations. So he says, every event must be one or the other, but no event can be more than one. But every event has them all. If an event is past, it has been present and future. If it's future, it will be present and past. So all three characteristics belong to each event and we get a contradiction. McTaggart argues that as the A-series leads to contradiction, we have to reject the A-series and then the reality of time altogether. That is McTaggart's argument for the unreality of time in a very brief nutshell. Now, C.D. Broad disagrees with McTaggart. Um, and I think that he does so <coughs> using diagrams of time. So in a footnote, McTaggart writes that it's very usual to contemplate time using a, using a metaphor of spatial movement. Broad picks up on this metaphor and he uses it to create two different diagrams. On the first diagram, we have the A series sliding along a fixed B series. On the second diagram, we have the B series sliding along a fixed A series. I think that these diagrams encode various aspects of Broad's metaphysics. So in both of these diagrams, the present moment is centred. It's represented by zero in both diagrams, and it's in the centre. And, and the, this privileging of the present moment can be seen in many, many depictions of time from other A-theorists. So just to give you a couple of recent examples, here's Dayton doing exactly the same, and here's Bourne doing exactly the same. Present is centred. 
this makes sense because if you are an a theorist the present is special there is something special about the present moment now the way that broad represents time is using integers and that means that we get degrees of pastness and futurity so if zero is the present moment, minus one is one degree of past, minus two is two degrees of past, and so on. One is one degree of future, two is two degrees of future. So we get degrees of pastness and futurity. This allows Broad to show the movement of time at any one moment one event represented by a little circle is present or it is minus one degree of pastness or it's minus two degree of pastness. So he's showing us the movement of time. There's also various arrows just stressing the movement of time. Um, so these A characteristics are really embedded in the diagram, um, but they don't have to be. So just to give you a contrast, here is a diagram from the same period by another philosopher, Samuel Alexander. Alexander is a B theorist, and here is one of his representations of time. There's no arrows, certainly no degrees of pastness or futurity. This is just it. That's what there is. There's no sense of motion. This is just how time looks from his B theorist perspective. <coughs> Now, going back to Broad, I think that these diagrams actually manifest the heart of Broad's objections to McTaggart. So, McTaggart doesn't use diagrams at all in his books anywhere, as far as I can tell. And when Broad gives us these diagrams, he mentions McTaggart's footnote and he gives us the impression that these diagrams are compatible with McTaggart's work. I don't think they are remotely. McTaggart's metaphor is just linguistic. It's not pictorial. And I think that by illustrating this A series and B series in the way that Broad does, he, it gives him a really powerful tool to make the argument against McTaggart that he presents a little bit later. So, Broad's discussion of time is extremely long. It covers maybe 80 pages. Um, he gives these diagrams very close to the start of it. His objection to McTaggart is about 70 words. <laughs> and this is it. You've got it on your handouts. Right, Broad just says, I cannot myself see that there is any contradiction to be avoided. When it's said that past, present and futurity are incompatible predicates, this is true only in the sense that no one term could have two of them simultaneously or timelessly. Now, no term ever appears to have any of them timelessly, and no term ever appears to have any two of them simultaneously. Instead, certain terms have them successively. Broad doesn't reference these diagrams, but this is exactly what those diagrams show. We see that every event successively has plus two degree of futurity. 
plus one. Zero, minus one, minus two. He's showing us the succession in pictorial form. And I think that's why his objection is just 70 words in this enormous 80-page discussion of McTaggart on time. I think he believes, he's just made the point that there's, there's no way to deny that things are successive when you frame it in this pictorial way. If I'm right, then Broad's pictures of time are acting as rhetoric devices. They are aiming to show us, in a really simple, intuitive fashion, the heart of his objection to McTaggart. Okay, case studies over with. I want to very briefly turn to history of philosophy in the wider world. So this paper has specifically been about looking at pictures in the history of philosophy of time. But I think that historians of philosophy more generally should be paying more attention to pictures. <coughs> lots and lots of historical philosophers use pictures. And it's a little bit like yellow cars. As soon as someone asks you to look for a yellow car, you see them everywhere. But once I've begun doing this project, so many people have begun emailing me to say, have you seen these pictures? <laughs> and these and these. And, and I'm just gonna give you a really tiny selection of some of the philosophers that use pictures in their work. So. Here is something from the Pythagorean Table of Opposites. Um, tables, really common back in the day. Um, and what this particular table is doing is offering us pairs. So not just pairs of opposites, right, left, male, female, straight, crooked. But also by aligning these in particular commons, columns, the objects in each column become associated. <laughs> you can see where this is going. And so we have right, male, straight, light, good, and we have left, female, crooked, darkness, bad. <laughs> Tables work common. And Aristotle's texts make reference to lots and lots of diagrams, most of which haven't survived. But there is a little bit of work on what those diagrams might have been like. A few more examples. This is another one. Uh, also from uh, the pre-Socratics, that um, apparently Aristotle borrowed. Uh, we have here um, Margaret Cavendish. Um, she often puts elaborate frontispieces onto her texts, um, illustrating the ideas contained within the text. I don't think there's any work on any of them. Um, this is from Henry Moore. This is designed to illustrate some of his ideas about absolute space. This is Tudworth, again, a frontispiece. Lots of his books have elaborate frontispieces. Uh, Glanville, this is a book on witchcraft, but there's a lot of philosophy and immaterial things in there that might be worth a look. Um, this is Renouvier, and this is a diagram showing alternative possibilities. So capital letters represent things that happened, lowercase letters represent things that did not happen. Uh, this is from Bergson, uh, illustrating different possible futures. Bergson's work have lots and lots of diagrams in. It, like, his books are really riddled with them. 
it's not just the case that philosophers are using these diagrams occasionally and like some of them really really cared about them it, I, you know so Hobbes commissions and pours over his frontispieces and um, some of Descartes works the publications were delayed because the diagrams were not yet right and um, if any of you worked on Vico he spends quite a lot of time uh, explaining the role of diagrams in some of his books so the philosophers themselves cared about diagrams and I think that gives us reason to think that we should care about them as well. Despite this, evidence suggests that historians of philosophy don't currently care very much about diagrams. A sign of this is that modern editions of historical texts often omit <coughs> the diagrams or they play them down in some way. Um, so Bagri has pointed out in a History of Science article on Descartes' principles, um, that although his 1644 original Latin edition contained over 40 pictures, it's just a few examples of the famous vortices, for example, and um, more about how vortices work, stuff about gravity, um, that although the book contained 40 pictures and they are often reprinted from one page to the next so that the reader should continually have them in mind. Modern editions often leave them out altogether or sometimes maybe half of them are printed but they're stuck at the back of the book. There's certainly no edition that is reprinting them from page to page. So the significance of these images has sort of been downgraded. Um, using Bagri as a starting point I've looked at various other editions of big philosophical texts and you can find similar things there. So, for example, Spinoza uses some diagrams in his Ethics. The most recent 2018 edition of the Ethics doesn't include all the diagrams. Another sign of neglect is how rarely historians of philosophy discuss pictures. So there are some discussions. I don't want to tell you that there aren't any. There are some but they are so few and far between. It, um, it's really rare to find a historian of philosophy discussing pictures. And what is much more common is to find discussions of pictures in philosophical texts in adjacent fields. So you get historians of science discussing pictures in Descartes' principles. You get historians of art discussing Hobbes's frontispieces. It's very rare to find discussion of images from historians of philosophy. There is a book which I was very excited about when I first came across it uh, by David Runes in the 1960s. Uh, and it's titled Pictorial History of Philosophy. Uh, but it is not what you might think. Um, it actually includes portraits of philosophers and places where they lived. <laughs> so just to give you an example, um, oh, can I do this? Yes, good. Is this working? The room in which Spinoza died, which is great. Hitler admiring a bust of Nietzsche, which we all need. Um, and there are a few philosophical pictures. So this is Confucius pointing at a stream, looking at the inconstancy of material things. Why this disinterest in 
stuff like this, which could be cool. And historians of science have asked this question and the answer is quite simple. They think there is simply a tendency to believe that words are more important than pictures. Um, and so of course everyone's going to focus on the words because the pictures are just decorative, that all of the thinking is taking place in the language. These historians of science um, have attempted to overthrow that view um, and I think historians of philosophy should join in. I think that we can learn more from pictures than we currently do. And that's it. Thank you.